So I have a baby led weaning cabinet in my kitchen. It's where I store all of the feeding gear that we use for work. It's 100% easy peasy. And actually some of the easy peasy suction mats and bowls in there are more than seven years old at this point, still going strong. I know you guys already have a lot of baby gear in your house, but when it comes to feeding gear, the Easy Peasy products are beyond compare. Everything Easy Peasy makes is designed by their infant feeding expert. She also happens to be my good friend and colleague, Dawn Winkleman. She specializes in baby led weaning, and we were just chatting that the tiny cup that she designed for Easy Peasy, which was the first ever baby led weaning cup, it's now five years old. She sent us a prototype to try out with our twins when they were doing their 100 first foods, and now it's won all sorts of awards, and their feeding line has expanded so much. I love that when we start babies on the tiny line, of easy peasy feeding gear, they're getting developmentally appropriate tools to help them succeed at self-feeding. So when your baby turns one, you size up to the mini line for toddlers, then it's into their happy line for bigger kids. Easy peasy has a new basics line. I mean, like their, their website's so big now. Like we've been using that one for our own kids right now. Dawn designed all of those products and it's been so fun to see our family grow kind of in line with the growth of the easy peasy feeding line. They're also going backwards though, because they are revolutionizing the pre-feeding space. So even if your baby hasn't started solid foods yet, there are some great pre-feeding tools that Easy Peasy is now making. You can check it all out at easypeasyfun.com. My affiliate discount code for Easy Peasy is Katie 10 I think that code is like seven years old too at this point. I love using the Easy Peasy products in my house for my own kids, as well as the babies that I work with in my infant feeding practice, and that I hope the Easy Peasy gear is as helpful to your family as it has been to mine. That code again is Katie 10 for all of the fabulous feeding gear over at easypeasyfun.com. Want more control over your life? You need more control over your money. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and that's why I started the Her Money Podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, I can help you get there. So join me. Subscribe to Her Money with Jean Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. I think gardening teaches so many valuable lessons that other things just can't. Like it teaches responsibility. It teaches you like how to care for and nurture something and then reaping the reward of that. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. What if you could grow the food that your baby is learning how to eat? Even if you guys don't have a green thumb, and I definitely do not, my guest today, Brian Briganti from Redleaf Ranch, is definitely convinced that you can and should be growing some of the super easy starter foods that your baby's learning how to eat. So Brian is a content creator. He is a gardener. He is like the most enthusiastic person about gardening that I've ever met in my life. He's really big on TikTok. If you guys are on TikTok, check him out at Redleaf Ranch. He's also on Instagram. But I met Brian in person at a content creator's trip that we both went to in Vermont earlier this year. And I was just so inspired by his enthusiasm for gardening. For someone who like literally knew nothing about it, just a very short period of time ago, like by the end of the trip, he convinced all of us that like, like all need to be doing more gardening. So I gave him my 100 first foods list and I was like, Brian, can you come on the podcast? Just pick five of these foods 
and tell us how easy it is to grow them. So that's what we're going to do today. Brian's going to be walking us through carrots, bell peppers, asparagus, squash, and green beans. I hope you guys love this episode. Five foods you can grow and your baby can eat with Brian Briganti from Red Leaf Ranch. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Okay, I know this is not like usually your target audience, but the moms and few dads and grandparents listening are here because they want to learn about ways that they can feed their baby safe, real, wholesome food. So we are going to talk about growing your own food that the whole family can enjoy. But before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, your story? I love your origin story. And then how you kind of came to this line of work. Yeah, of course. I was actually born and raised in Chicago. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in New York City. Like the city was really everything I've ever known in my life. And within New York City, I was pursuing photography more specifically. And after growing up in the city, being in the city my whole life, the opportunity presented itself for me to move to the countryside or experience the countryside because my partner, who I met in New York City, grows amazing, stunning, gorgeous, luscious, carnivorous, and tropical plants. And he was literally growing them in a makeshift greenhouse that he built in his backyard in Brooklyn. And when we were in Brooklyn, more specifically, he, he decided to turn his passion into a business and it immediately exploded and he needed to find somewhere new to expand his greenhouses because there was only so much that little greenhouse in his backyard can do. So he found property here in Tennessee. He moved on down and I decided to tag along because honestly, I was tired of city life. I was overwhelmed with how much we had to work. Given I didn't move here necessarily with the plan to like start gardening. I, I wanted to like move here just for the peace of mind and then travel back to New York to do my photography work and then come back and have that work-life balance. But then the pandemic happened and I wasn't able to travel anymore. And I was just kind of stuck in the countryside, not sure really what to do with myself. But I knew it was a really great opportunity to like pivot and learn something new. And my partner loves to garden. He literally was born in the forest. He was meant to work with the earth, but I had never attempted it at all in my life. Now he focuses more on like perennials and landscaping and growing beautiful, beautiful landscapes, but he never really focused on food. So with the pandemic and with how uncertain like our food situation was going to be in the next few months, I thought it'd be a great time for me to learn how to grow my own food. And oh my gosh, <laughs> the moment I planted something, I never looked back. I fell so deeply in love with gardening. And here I am like three years later, gardening is my full-time job, creating content on the internet and inspiring people how to do it. It's crazy how life has played out. I, love I really the, like, feel TikTok and the like the oh. success stories that come out of the pandemic. So many people are like, okay, I was on my phone, but I was also in my garden. And then I connected these two things. Like here I am in my garden. Here I am putting that content on TikTok. And now you're like, I mean, massive on these different platforms and getting to do your passion full time. It's so inspiring. Did you immediately start posting your stuff on TikTok? Is that like, was that your primary platform from the beginning? Oh, like being a photographer, like my main platform was Instagram. Um, so everything that I was doing within the first year of gardening, like I was sharing, given I didn't like have a plan to like, the intention wasn't to become what it is today. It's like, I just want to find like-minded people and share my adventure and like inspire others to do it too, or see who else is doing it to get ideas. So I started sharing it on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And I built a, a really nice little community there. But one of my friends reached out, I was like, Brian, your personality, like, we just adore you. You have to get on TikTok. You have to get on TikTok. And I was like, ah, I'm already juggling three social medias. How am I supposed to juggle another one? Like, I was so overwhelmed at the thought. 
of an entirely new media that is so deep as well, because like there's so many different ways to create on TikTok. But about a year after all the gardening started, I finally caved and made me a TikTok. And the first six months were kind of slow on it. But in 2021 is when things really started getting crazy. Like within that summertime, like from May to September. But it went from 1,500 followers to 1.3 million within that short span of time. Do you think that was like Um, based on the seasons and people are more interested? Like you were saying, spring is really big for you. But so then like those people are starting to, I guess, reap the benefits of all of their hard work in the garden and all the summer produce is out. Like, does your content kind of ebb and flow with that calendar year thing going on? Which is really cool. And I feel like I'm in a really unique space in being a content creator on TikTok within gardening. Because you get a break. Get a break. Like it's winter time. I'm taking, I'm kicking my feet up and I'm resting because on top of all the hard work that comes with gardening, like the physical labor and now having to create content on top of that, by the time November hits, I'm exhausted and I'm so ready for the break. So I've been wanting to ask you, what is the basic difference between summer and winter produce, summer gardening, winter gardening? Again, I, I am a person who knows absolutely nothing about gardening. You have inspired me to restart. I've started and stopped and killed every sort of produce. And people are like, you can't even grow tomatoes in California. Like, what's wrong with you? I don't know anything about gardening. And it feels very overwhelming to me. Does it matter what part of the country you live in? Like, we're recording this at the end, the dead of winter, basically. Are you growing anything? Or are you like totally on a break? How does it work with the seasons? Well, in wintertime, the only thing I can grow here is garlic. So I have tons of garlic in the garden. It's amazing. But when we talk about summer and winter crops, what we're really talking about there isn't necessarily the season, but the temperature that these plants like. So summer crops get really, really hot. They don't like to go below like 50 degrees. Winter, uh, spring and fall crops, they get much cooler. They don't like to go above like the 80s or, or really above the 90s. They get stressed in that kind of heat. So really, no matter where you are in the country, you are able to grow things. It's just depending on whether you want to grow a hot crop or a cool crop. Now, the further north you get, the colder it is going to be. And the shorter your summer season is, you are able to grow hot crops, but you have to grow it within that small time frame. Sometimes if you're like, if you have a really short season, you won't be able to, but you have the luxury of growing a lot of cool crops. You know, it really just depends on on, on what you want to grow. And you can adapt your space to grow certain things. For example, if you are in a cooler climate, I know there's people that have like cold tunnels or even greenhouses where they have much more controlled or regulated situations and they can grow hot crops in like the middle of winter. And in really hot climates, I know people who build shade houses to create a cooler environment to grow cool crops. So it's really just about understanding what a certain plant likes and being able to modify your setting to give that to them. I love the idea of modifying your setting. It makes me think of, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal after college and I lived there for two and a half years. And I lived in kind of the Mid Hills region adjacent to Darjeeling. So the tea growing region, quite cold, but not like Himalayas freezing. And I always thought it was so fascinating oh. during the monsoon season, which was October and November, they right prior to that. So it, it rains for two months straight and you can't grow anything. It's just a deluge everywhere, but they would grow the gourds like pumpkin was a big one and lots of different squash and they would actually put them grow them on the roof so they had tin roofs and they would have the whole gardening system set up where they could actually grow the pumpkins on their roof because everything was getting destroyed on the ground and then they would store them in cool you know like not cellars but above ground attics basically 
And you could keep like a gourd for an inordinately long time. I'm like, why do pumpkins go rotten in like a day here? But like, obviously they're not carving them. But I thought it was so interesting how they were adapting to their environment in order to have to some degree of variety of fruits and vegetables. But it was crazy. You'd walk around the village and just see everyone growing pumpkins and squash on their roof. It was so neat. That's so cool. Yeah. It's again, it's really about understanding the plant that you want to grow and putting them in a space where they will thrive. It doesn't really matter where you are. It's just adapting. And if if there's anyone we can learn how to adapt from, it's plants. Plants are the most resilient and most adaptable creatures on the planet. Like they've been here for millions and millions and millions and millions, billions of years. And, and they're, they're going to be here long after us, I hope. <laughs> yeah, they're designed to like survive outside conditions. Meanwhile, we're here like building houses, living in caves because like, oh no, it's snowing. Like we can't do it. Like plants are very resilient. Okay, I just am so fascinated by your story because, I mean, if you can go from living like as a city boy with absolutely no experience in gardening, relocating, totally getting into this whole gardening culture, I'm not saying anyone can do it, but it's very inspiring to be like, well, I don't really have an excuse not to try it. So before we get into talking about the particulars of some of the different vegetables that are easy to grow at home that parents might consider doing, just as someone who has made this transition and this like life change fairly recently, Brian, what do you think are the benefits of growing your own food? Like, why would anyone want to do this? Or what are the benefits you've experienced since you've adopted this lifestyle? One of the immediate things that I realized when starting to grow my own food was I actually had no idea what food looked like when it was growing. Like growing up in the city, I would just go to a grocery store, get my tomatoes, get a melon, get my kale, get some broccoli. And I had no idea how any of that food was actually grown. So when I started growing my own food, I realized like, oh my gosh, like broccoli is actually a massive plant. Tomatoes are huge. Like just having that understanding of what that food actually looks like, how it's grown. I grew a much deeper appreciation for that food. And then like through the actual practices of gardening, like I realized how important it is that we are in control of what we consume, of what we grow. And growing it yourself allows you to get food that's much more nutritious and you are absolutely certain that there weren't any toxic chemicals used in the process as well. Like, you know, when you harvest something, the moment you snip something off the vine, it immediately starts to lose nutritional value. And when things are mass produced and like sent to a supermarket, like you have no idea how long it's been from point A to point, at this point, point C or D, because there's like a lot of little in-between places that think that produce needs to stop at before it gets to the grocery store. So by then you don't even know how nutritious the food is. So growing it yourself, you know you're getting very nutritious, high-quality food. And if you follow organic and all-natural practices, you know it's safe as well. Like, you're not consuming any, like, toxic chemicals or anything like that. And extra layer on top of all of that, you are so much more connected to the natural setting around you. And that in itself, just being that much more connected to Mother Nature is, is so worth it to me. What about the cost? Is it expensive to start gardening? Do you end up saving money? I mean... I have seven kids. My grocery bill is insane. I think they don't even eat that much. But like, oh my gosh, groceries are so incredibly expensive right now because of what's happening in our economy. I can imagine a lot of people are interested in home gardening because of the potential to save money. Is that correct? Well, think about why groceries are expensive. You know, we're, we're outsourcing so much of our produce and inflation is just like throwing everything off the rails. Like it's so much more expensive for gas. So of course, it's going to cost more to transport certain things, not to mention the carbon emissions from that. It's so much more expensive to get resources and supplies for farmers to grow these things. Like if you are growing everything in your backyard, it really is dependent on how, how you want your garden to look. There are definitely cost-effective ways to start a garden, like just making a plot right in the ground, 
But if you want to get fancy and like build raised beds and do something a lot more organized and more structured, of course, that's going to be more expensive, but you don't have to do it that way. Um, there's this beautiful method of gardening called the no-till gardening method where you literally just like throw cardboard. I mean, this is a very like simple version of it. You just throw cardboard on a plot, uh, on the area that you want to grow in, throw soil on top of that, let it marinate for like two to three months and you are ready to start growing things immediately into that space. I'd say the most expensive, like getting started costs would be getting the soil or getting mulch, you know, getting, getting the amendments that you need for your soil. But once you actually have your garden started, it will not cost that much to upkeep a garden ever again. Like the initial cost is the startup cost. But after that, you're just going to keep saying reward and reward and reward. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. My phone is bursting at the seams with photos of our kids. And over the years, I've tried all sorts of different ways to store and share them with family members. So for a while, I would just text out pictures to the grandparents. And then we tried a shared photo album. But some people were using Google Photos and others preferred Facebook Messenger for pictures. And the more kids we had, the messier it got. Then I stumbled across the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure, personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes, and it's totally free. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching folders to find the picture of the kid that you need right now. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home which if you think about how quickly your baby is changing, it's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document the last month of your baby's life. If you're looking to level up your photo sharing and organization game with a secure, one-stop, easy-to-use photo organization app, head over to the App Store, search Family Album, download the Family Album app, and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. So my audience is very well-versed in the benefits of offering their babies a diverse array of foods. So I teach this five-step feeding framework where we introduce babies to five new foods a week. So one new fruit on Monday, we do a new vegetable on Tuesday, a starchy food on Wednesday, a protein food on Thursday, and then an allergenic food every Friday. So this whole five-step feeding framework, it's the backbone of my 100 First Foods program where we help families safely introduce their babies to 100 foods before turning one. So I in preparation for this interview, you guys, I gave Brian a copy of the 100 First Foods list, and then he picked out five foods that he thought parents could most easily grow at home. So Brian, if it's okay, I'd like to go through the five that you chose, which are carrots, bell peppers, asparagus, squash, like zucchini, and then green beans. So could we kind of run down your list with suggestions and recommendations for each of these? I don't want to give it all away. Brian does have an amazing online beginner's gardening guide. I'm going to tell you guys all about that too, but maybe you could just like kind of whet our appetite for those of those parents who are interested in doing this, but are like, where do I start? What would you say for carrots? Of course. Well, I generated this list based off of like what I found easiest to grow in my space and like what yielded a lot. Like I had so much of all of these things. I didn't even know what to do with it all. Carrots are super simple. I would say it is a cooler growing crop. So like spring and fall would be the ideal time to grow carrots. And they're so easy to grow. You literally just make little trenches in your soil. Make sure with with growing any of these plants, you always want to make sure you have really rich loose soil. So get yourself some good garden soil, fill it up with some compost or worm castings or worm poop. Worm poop is like black gold. It's like the most nutritious thing on the planet for your plants. So I would always recommend getting worm castings, but make sure you have some nice loose, deep soil. 
sprinkle your gar- your carrot seeds in a little trench or make a few trenches and cover it up, water them, and just watch them grow. Now, carrot seeds are very, very little. So don't be so hard on yourself if you like can't space them out accordingly. Literally, I just grab my seeds and I just sprinkle them no matter how they fall. It can really fill up a little, a little trench. And as it starts to grow, all you have to do is thin them out as they're growing so that the more mature carrots have at least two to three inches in between them. And then with that, your carrots will literally just continue to grow until you pluck them. <laughs> okay, but so like but right there, like soil is really so easy to you. But I'm like, every time I try to grow carrots, I didn't know about thinning it out. So I think they all just bump into each other and end up with these like tiny little nubbins that are like more pathetic looking I, than like than like baby carrots. And like, I don't even know the basics. Like, I know it's easy to you, but I think like even carrots can be challenging. I mean, I only learned this through experience. The first year I grew carrots, I did not thin them. And I had all these like little funny looking carrots. And I noticed like some of them like sort of growing into one another on top of each other. It's really just like giving yourself the experience, allowing yourself to make those mistakes and learning from that. Now that I've grown carrots once, it's so easy for me to to know what to give carrots now so that they can grow to their fullest potential. And something else that's really cool about carrots here in the fall. If I forget to harvest my carrots, they will literally grow through the winter because it's like a root veggie. It'll just like grow underground. And as I'm getting my beds ready in the spring, I'm like digging through some beds. I'm like, oh my gosh, a carrot. Oh my God, a carrot. I just be, I'm just finding carrots. It's the gift that keeps it on giving. I love it. Okay. What about bell peppers, Brian? Oh my gosh. Bell peppers. Peppers in general are just like really, really productive givers. Like they will give you so many peppers. Peppers need quite a bit of room. I'd say like give them like a good like two to three feet of wiggle room around them because they can bush out or get really tall. But again, give them a really nice like a rich, loose soil to grow in. They like it really hot. Peppers are hot growers, so they are a summertime crop. So make sure you don't plant them in times when it gets like below 50 degrees. They'll definitely grow slow if it's that cool. They like it super hot. So warm weather is definitely ideal for peppers. And something that I guess isn't really spoken on when I started learning how to garden is feeding your plants like throughout the season. Once your plant actually starts to grow and producing fruit, it has taken energy and nutrients to grow those fruit. And once it produces those fruit, it has expended that energy. It has expended those nutrients. So throughout the season, continuously feed your plants. Like maybe every three to four weeks, throw in some fertilizer. Like you can literally get uh, granules that you can sprinkle on top, or there's water soluble fertilizers that you can use to water in to the roots. Just continuously feed your plants. But even then, like if you have a really nice little bed set up with some rich soil, nice loose, rich soil, if you plant a pepper in there, it's going to give you so much for a while before it needs to be fed. Yeah, peppers are just really easy. <laughs> They're so All right, easy how about today. asparagus? Ooh, asparagus is a really cool one. Within gardening, there are plants called annuals, and then there are plants called perennials. Asparagus is really cool because it's a perennial, meaning you plant it once and it'll live for years. It'll just keep going and going and going and going versus annuals. Like for example, here, because we get that winter time, peppers are considered an annual for me because they will die in the winter and I have to re-sow them in the spring. But asparagus, I plant it once here. Make sure asparagus has a lot of room because they will, every year it will get bigger and bigger and it will take up more and more room. But what's really cool about asparagus, it will live continuously for years and years and years. And you do want to harvest them as soon as the shoots start coming up from the ground. But yeah, asparagus is really easy and it'll just keep producing. It'll keep producing. I think especially if you want to- Have you seen like those time-lapse videos of asparagus growing? Like apparently it grows really super fast even when you're not watching a time-lapse video. Is that true? 
Yeah, they grow really quickly. Like I'd say like once they start sending out shoots, like you want to harvest it within like the first week. Cause there's also a point what we're essentially eating when we're eating asparagus is like the flower stalk. So the taller it gets, the more mature the flower stalk gets and it starts shooting out its flowers. So you want to get it when it's really young and it also won't be as fibrous, you know? So yeah, harvest it young. But again, will keep producing for you. And every year it'll give you more and more and more because it will keep growing. I have a question about asparagus. I always was under the impression that the thinner, skinnier stalks were more tender and like the big fat ones were not because they're fibrous. But someone told me I was wrong and you can actually have like super tender, bigger asparagus. Is that true? Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's because of the size. I think it's more so like the age of the asparagus. Like the older the asparagus gets, the more mature the asparagus gets like into that flowering stage, the more... Uh, the more fibrous it's going to be. But the younger, it can, a young asparagus stalk can be thick, it can be skinny, just harvest it young. <laughs> okay, so now squash is one of like our favorite foods to do for baby led weaning. It's so easy. Parents are like, I don't eat a lot of vegetables. I'm like, you can make squash safe for babies to eat very easily. What about growing squash? Hard, easy? What are your thoughts? I think squash is probably the easiest thing to grow. Literally, again, get your nice little plot ready, some really rich, loose loamy soil, get a really nice plot ready. All you have to do is plant the seed in like mid spring or when temperatures are above, like consistently above 50 degrees and all you have to water it. And all you have to do is watch that baby grow. Where do you get your seeds from? Or where do you recommend people do if they've like, like I just go to Home Depot. Is that right? Or are you supposed to get them from somewhere else? Right. Or a wrong way. There's, there's a lot of places you can get seeds. Sometimes I source from local garden centers. Sometimes I go to Home Depot or Lowe's. If I want something really specific, I, I go online. Something that's really beautiful about gardening, though, is the, the communal aspect of it. There are a lot of like Facebook groups, Instagram groups, communities on TikTok, and people will literally just share seeds with one another. And I think that's one of the greatest things that you can give to someone because it's future food, you know, and one seed can produce so much. Like with squash, you plant one seed and you can get like 15 to 20 fruit off of one plant. Like, and squash grows so fast. Plant it. A thing with squash, there's also this thing, um, like when you start seeds indoors or you get like little starts and then you plant like a baby plant. Squash isn't one of those plants that I'd recommend doing that with. Like you want to plant the seed directly because their roots are very fragile, very sensitive. So imagine like, when you take it out of a pot and put it into soil, that little bit of friction there can really stress out a plant. Squash does not like that at all whatsoever. Same with beans, corn, carrots, always direct cells, sunflowers, things like that. It's so um, funny because those vegetables are thought to be so hardy, right? Like zucchini, different squash, carrots. You're like, oh yeah, those are hardcore, but they have very fragile roots. I love that. You can't, you can't judge a vegetable by its... What's happening underground is very different. They're very soft. They're very sensitive inside. Love it. What about green beans, Brian? Oh, green beans. Um, Green beans, another one really easy to grow. I would recommend soaking any kind of bean before planting it because I just realized this recently through reading uh, this book called uh, Botany for Gardeners. But essentially a seed activates because it's kind of like a little sponge and it absorbs water. And when it absorbs that water, that's kind of what kickstarts its growing phase. So if a certain plant doesn't have enough moisture during the seed stage, it won't sprout. So soaking that bean beforehand really makes sure it has all the moisture it needs to activate and to start sprouting. So it's really beneficial for beans. Another one you want to direct sow. Now, green beans like it warm as well. Most beans like it really hot. And you have to be conscious of whether the bean that you plant, I mean, we're talking about green beans, but 
beans can be either a bush plant or a vining plant. So a bush plant, given the name, it will grow in a bush habit and it will just take up like a little chunk of room. But a vining bean will start climbing things. They want to latch onto things and grow upward. They like to grow vertically. So I recommend like trellising or even with bamboo sticks, like around the, uh, around the bean, give them something to latch onto so it can grow vertically. They do their best when they grow like that. And beans are also special in the sense that they don't necessarily need the richest soil. Beans are really cool because they're actually nitrogen fixers of soil. So they actually bring nutrients back into the earth. So they're a really fun plant to actually like companion with other plants, like with squash, for example, because squashes need a lot of nutrients. So planting like bush beans around squashes allows you to bring nutrients back into the soil as the squash is uh, feeding and growing. So beans are really cool. It sounds like, okay, a lot of work to get up and running. But then once you do, it's kind of like sit back and, you know, watch your fruits, vegetables, et cetera, grow. But like what sort of predators do you face, maybe particularly where you are in Tennessee? Oh, this is a good question because they will vary from region to region. Here we get cabbage worm really bad. We get squash bug really bad. But I'm very, very, very adamant on never using any chemicals in my garden because it doesn't just affect the little predator that I'm going after. It'll actually affect the entire ecosystem above and below the soil. Like over time, toxic chemicals, as it rains, will leach into the soil and it can have awful effects on your soil ecology. Um, not to mention over time when that runs into groundwater, it goes into rivers and springs. It's like, it's a whole mess. Don't use chemicals. So what do you use um, to, to combat cabbage worm and squash bug? Well, I'm just very present in my garden one. I'm very like on top of a lot of my plants. So I'm like hand picking things off, but it's very possible to create like little structures, like little tents for your cabbages. Cabbage worm goes after members of the brassica family. So that's like cabbages, broccoli, kales. They're all related. They all have that kind of like thick leaf that cabbage worms just love. So if you build like little tents or structures around them, it'll prohibit the the cabbage moth, which is like those little white butterflies from landing and laying their eggs and wreaking havoc. With squash bug, I have found it a little bit more challenging because some of them, some squash is vine, some bush. So you really just have to kind of be present and aware of like where they are and like hand pick them off or like hand pick the eggs. You can see them. But another really strong tactic that I've used in the garden is companion planting and creating a biodiverse ecosystem within my garden. Like the more things that you plant, the more wildlife that's going to attract. So that kind of creates a hierarchy within your garden. And if you attract something that, if you plant something that attracts a predatory insect that feeds on cabbage worm or feeds on squash bug or other little insects like aphids, you know, you create kind of a hierarchy there and things kind of just take care of themselves. It gives you an excuse to plant more plants (laughs) which is always amazing. But you take care of things the natural way. Um, I've never really had an outbreak of a pest. Like I do get quite a bit of squash bug and cabbage worm, but I still get a lot of abundance from the garden and things kind of play out on their own, which is really cool to see. And you're in there every day, as you point out. So you see things probably before they become problematic. So I know I, for one, am very inspired to kind of get back into the the just growing some of my own, not not anticipating that I can do it all and live completely off the land as like, I'm just not inclined to do that. But I do think especially like my kids are of the age now where they can help. And so having them see the food, because you make such a good point. Like I would argue most Americans have no idea where their food comes from. And 
it is an easy way to teach children more about, okay, you know, obviously lots of, right. You can teach science, you can teach math, you can teach reading all of this through gardening. You can teach about nutrition. And we also know there's research to show us that the more involved children are in the preparation of the foods that the family eats, the more inclined they are to eat it. So obviously we talk about food prepping with your kids and having, letting your toddlers help you cook, but we can take it one step before that, which is you can have them help plant maybe just some of these five or these five vegetables and they'll know so much more about where their food comes, but also be so much more inclined to eat those foods. Um, I love this for, for parents, Brian, who are on the fence about adopting more home gardening. What can you say to convince them that this is something that they should do? It's time to get off the fence. Start a garden. <laughs> <laughs> get on TikTok and start watching Brian. Hey, I meant to ask you, what is the meaning behind Red Leaf Ranch, the name of your account? Funny enough. I mentioned previously that my partner owns a carnivorous and tropical plant nursery. It's called Red Leaf Exotics. So Red Leaf Ranch was just kind of a play off of that. Like, oh, this is like the exotic parts of what we do here. Now this is the ranch part. So it's uh, cool. like uh, as a whole, it's Red Leaf. But my part of it all is Red Leaf Ranch. But before getting into that, I do still want to speak on why parents are on the fence. Dude, um, tell me. I'm just like, lazy. I got to be honest. Lazy? Here's my excuse. Lazy seems like a lot of work. Feels expensive to like ask my husband to build garden beds, buy all the soil. And then I live in California. My water bill is already insane. Like the thought of watering something that I'm not like the fact of adding more water to my water bill is a little frightening to me. That's valid. That's valid. Um, well, there are drought tolerant things that you can plant. Like once a pepper plant starts going, it's actually one of the things that I water least in the garden. They do not need that much water compared to like I'd say squash would enjoy some uh, quite a bit of water. Tomatoes, not so much either. Like just plant things that are more drought resistant. But even on top of that, I think gardening teaches so many valuable lessons that other things just can't. Like it teaches responsibility. It teaches you like how to care for and nurture something and then reaping the reward of that. And the amount of core memories that you'll probably be able to create when you are with your children in a garden is... There's no other place you can create memories in that way. And also going back to like teaching them like the, the, to appreciate their food. Like if you grow something, they're going to be a lot more inclined to eat it because they worked so hard to grow that. I really think gardening just teaches so many things that schools just can't teach. And if you fail, if you mess up and, and something doesn't work out in the garden, it teaches you to like persevere, keep going. There are just so many lessons. There are so many lessons that gardening can can teach you that are just not very easy to teach any other way i'd say and i would also argue like that especially with organic foods they just taste better like a tomato yes. that you buy at a grocery store in california is 100 going to taste like nothing and a tomato that you grow in your own garden is going to be amazing so oh from a God. taste standpoint we're teaching our children about flavors of oh. foods if anything gardening has kind of ruined me in the sense that i can't go to the grocery store and get food from there because it just doesn't taste the same and plus there's something so exciting about gardening in the way that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different varieties of every single fruit and veggie that you know. Like when we go to the grocery store, we see like maybe five to six different varieties of tomatoes, but there are hundreds. There are purple ones, there are pink ones, there are orange ones, there are yellow ones, there are big ones, there are small ones, there are crispy ones, there are juicy ones. Like there are so many different kinds of tomatoes, peppers, melons. So just like inviting that kind of diversity into your food, it, it's like, like, yes, it's diverse to like eat carrots, peppers, squash, and green beans, but it's even more diverse to have like, a Japanese variety of carrots or like a Japanese melon or, you know, different varieties of every single thing like that really just takes it to a whole new level. And every single one has a very different flavor profile um, and so many different ways that you can prepare it. So it just makes cooking 
that much more exciting. And it, it just makes it just makes food more exciting. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and works with your lifestyle as a parent or caregiver. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on the journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. And getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. And I think this is particularly true for parents. I know firsthand how you can feel torn between your old baby-free, carefree self and this new, very challenging role of parenting a small person. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness, and understanding, as well as talking through, things that can help you know what you want or why you react the way you do. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month today. I love your enthusiasm for it. First of all, I love how you're only 27 years old too. And you just moved down. Do you think like guarding? I'm like, oh, it's something people do when they're retired and have time to do it. And yet you've built this whole amazing community. And I think you're really inspiring people of all ages to consider gardening more at home. I want to know, like, is your partner annoyed though? Cause like you moved down there so like he could have more space for his plant business. And then you like, just like took over all of the land to grow all your food. Or is he supportive of you? I would assume too. No, so supportive of it. He's everything. He's like, blown away by like what I've been able to achieve here. If there's anything I, I will say about myself, it's like no matter where I live, no matter what situation I'm in, I always try to make the most of it using what I have. Given I, I haven't taken like over the entire land to do this. I have a little like 50 by 100 foot area that I garden in. If anything, he's taken over the entire property and like he's gardening his heart out, landscaping and creating these beautiful, beautiful scenes. And of course, like building the back part of the property for his nursery. Um, and he's so supportive of it. And on top of and it, carnivorous going, plants don't eat vegetables, right? So like your plants no. aren't threatened by his plants. You guys are living in harmony. I yeah. love it. And it's really cool. Cause like, I mean, he's very particular about his gardens. He does not let me plant anything in his gardens. He's like, don't even look at my garden. So it's nice that we have our own spaces to grow our own things. And I mean, I'm growing all of this amazing food and I'm the one cooking it. Of course he loves that he gets to taste it all, you know, like it's a win-win. Well, Brian, tell us where can our audience go to learn more about you and your work and to get your beginner's gardening guide because it's such a valuable resource for people who are going to get off the fence and start growing more food for their whole family, including their baby. Yes, let me teach you, please. It's so much fun. Well, you can check me out on all my socials. All of them are at Redley French, or you can check out our website, redleyfranch.com. The guide is very visible on all of our socials and on our website. So please check us out there. And if you have any like more in-depth questions, please don't hesitate to shoot me a message or email me too. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your expertise and your talents with us. I'm so excited for what's in store. I know you have some really exciting projects on the horizon, but I can't say thank you enough for joining us. This has been a really special opportunity to chat with you. For having me. This was, this was amazing. This is awesome. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brian Briganti from Red Leaf Ranch. He's on Instagram and TikTok at Red Leaf Ranch. And also, Brian has this amazing Red Leaf Ranch Beginner Garden Guide. It's an online education experience with different levels of subscription, depending upon what you need or you're interested in. 
I am going to link up Brian's socials as well as his course in the show notes page, which you can find for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 294. And I want to say a special thank you to our network partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the other podcasts from Airwave Media. We are on the internet at blwpodcast.com. And thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Like a lot of moms out there, I will totally admit I am quite type A. I am a total task master. And one of my weekly work tasks is to review the feedback forms that our new students in my program, which is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro, that they leave for us. So basically, this form asks a lot of questions about you and your baby and your baby's feeding and medical history, any concerns that you might have or fears about starting solid foods. And all of this data helps me when I'm answering parent questions inside of our weekly live office hours so I can then tailor my response to your particular baby and situation, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to what your baby's eating, right? Because maybe your baby has an egg allergy or another mom in the program. She might really be struggling with how to make meat safe because she doesn't like to cook. So this week on the forum, there's a new mom named Janine, and she wrote, and this is her quote, I researched a lot on the internet, and I have a lot of books. I saw a lot of other baby-led weaning programs, but in the end, this is the one that I realized is what I'm really looking for as a new mom. I love that Katie's program has a community and that there are videos for everything you need to know and how to make the foods. And what I love the most is that there's already a meal plan ready. And this just like stopped my heart because this is exactly why I created the Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro program. I wanted to literally put everything that you need to know about starting solid food safely in one place with a super easy to follow 20 full weeks meal plan. Okay, there's 20 weeks because it's five foods a week. I want your baby to get to those 100 new foods before they turn one because I also know you have a lot going on as a new mom and hunting and pecking all over the internet to try to figure out what am I going to feed this baby? That is not the solution. So if you want to check out the Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro program, I would be honored to work with you and your baby. You can head to babyledweaning.co to get started and hopefully I'll be reading your feedback soon too.